Hello, you're listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experience the history of Carnegie Mellon University. And for our second season of the podcast, we're exploring the history of computer science at CMU. This history involves early computer programs in the 1950s, linked list data structures, a whole succession of computer systems that expanded in speed and ability, graphical user interfaces, the founding of the Robotics Institute, the development of a high-speed computer network, computers playing chess, wearable computers, autonomous vehicles, a Coke machine hooked up to the internet, soccer robots, cobots, speech translation devices. You know, all that and so much more. I mean, so, so much more. To say the least, it's a tough history to sum up in a few short episodes. And we should certainly say that we aren't computer scientists. Our focus will be on the culture and environment during these times. We'll look at the highlights from those years, let's say 1956 to the mid-1980s, and provide as much context for the technological innovations as we can. It was a time of innovation where people were finding and pushing the limits of what computer science could be. It was truly a wild west of computing. And you may have noticed that that is the title of season two, The Wild West of Computing. Kate, I have to tell you that I am very excited for this season. Why is that? Well, I have so many instruments in this studio that make fake computer sounds, and I can finally use them. Things that sound like this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. Along with the awesome soundtrack, we'll also welcome a guest or two throughout the season who will give us some additional context for the first-hand accounts. But let's get into it. The term computer science was proposed in the mid-1950s, but the idea of a machine that can assist with making calculations goes back a ways. Think about the abacus. In ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, Persia, Greece, China, the many variations of the abacus allowed people to count and to make calculations. By moving beads and similar objects, the abacus provided opportunities for addition, square roots, and even cubic roots. Fun fact, if you used an abacus, you were considered an abacist. The abacus was a model of sorts for the calculator. Later in the 17th century, we start to see mechanical calculators. We actually have a guest in the studio today, Sam Lemley. My name is Sam Lemley. I'm the curator of special collections at Carnegie Mellon. Who will tell you a little bit more about these calculators. Yeah, so in special collections, we have a replica of Leibniz's stepped reckoner, which is a mechanical calculator, sort of precursor to the modern computer. And it's significant because it was the first mechanical computer to calculate 
across all four arithmetic operations. So addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Before that, I think that the most important calculator that preceded Leibniz's stepped reckoner was the Pascaline, which was invented and designed by Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician and scientist. But that was only capable of doing addition and subtraction. The real innovation that Leibniz introduced in the stepped reckoner was the stepped drum, which is a type of gear. It actually ended up being called the Leibniz wheel. And you see this particular component, this type of gear used in mechanical calculators all the way up until the 1970s. And we have also in the collection a CURTA, that's C-U-R-T-A, uh, mechanical calculator. It's, it was known kind of colloquially as the pepper grinder, because that's what it resembles. Um, but same thing, it uses the same kind of mechanical principles that Leibniz used in, in developing the, the stepped reckoner. The stepped reckoner itself, there were only two built sort of prototypes. They didn't work perfectly. I think only one survives um, in a museum in Germany. But ours is a replica that was built in the 40s or 50s. I haven't yet found out exactly, but uh, it's by an Italian model maker named Roberto Guatelli. And, and you said there was only two of these made? Yeah, at the time in the 17th century when Leibniz invented the Step Reckoner, we only have records of two prototypes that were successfully built. You know, the point that I often make is it's impossible to locate the origin of an entire field in one person, but Leibniz would be a good candidate for that origin point because as a mathematician, he invented calculus independently of Isaac Newton. He was invested in finding ways to make mathematical computation, arithmetic, much more efficient. And one part of that, as he saw it, was making um, devices that could assist mathematicians in sort of speeding things along, kind of getting rid of the rote, more boring aspects of calculation. Um, but he also was one of the first philosophers, mathematicians, to describe binary arithmetic. He invented, essentially, the form of binary arithmetic that we would recognize today and that it you know, formed one and zero as the two basic elements. And he was also interested in combinatorial logic and symbolic logic. So if you take like symbolic logic, mechanical computation, and his interest in binary arithmetic, those are sort of the three strands that go through history all the way up into modern computer science as it's practiced today. So we are starting to see this idea emerge that machines can assist with completing sequences of multiple steps. One thing that you may know about the early computers of the 1940s and 50s is that many of them utilized a punch card. This punch card was a way to organize a sequence of steps. And so what you did was you punched everything into cards and you had a card reader read all the things and did some computations and print out some intermediate result. And then you took the intermediate result and fed it back into the computer and did the next count. So you had to kind of conceptualize, saying what can you do, how big, and in what order you would do it, and so on. That is Raj Reddy. He's an absolute legend here. Raj came to CMU as a professor in 1969. A decade later, he co-founded the Robotics Institute at CMU, and in the 1990s, he became Dean of the School of Computer Science. Listen to Raj trace this idea of punch cards back to the 1800s. That was anticipated by Babbage when he designed his mechanical machine. 
that was all based on punch cards. And he got the idea of punch cards from the weaving machine people, the Jacquard loom, they called it, mechanical loom. Raj is talking about the Jacquard machine, which when paired with a loom was called the Jacquard loom. Created in 1804, this device assisted in textile manufacturing. Punched cards determined the design of the textile, making automated patterning in knitwear possible. And the interesting thing is, even at that time, the weavers understood the concept of art and digital art. You could kind of have bits, and then out of that you can create a photograph or a picture or image of a person or anything on a woven cloth. That abstraction was lost, and so when people were designing computers in the 40s, the only thing they thought was to use the computers to crunch numbers. Only in the early 60s and 70s, people said, oh, we can take a photograph and scan it and make an image out of it, a digital picture, and then we can process it and do something. The concept of processing of the image was not there, but the idea you could represent an image in some abstract notion, and then you could use that digital card, punch cards, to actually then weave it over and over again, so that the same carpet or same shawl or same whatever would come out with the same image each time. And I thought that was very interesting from a history point of historically history of computing. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's jump back to 1822. The first mechanical computer could be said to be Charles Babbage's difference engine, like Raj mentioned. Jump to 1843. Ada Lovelace recognized that machines could go beyond mere calculations. She published an algorithm to compute the Bernoulli numbers. It's viewed as the first published algorithm to be specifically imagined for implementation on a computer. That's why Ada Lovelace is considered the first computer programmer. Jumping ahead a century, the first modern electronic digital computer was built by Professor John Vincent at Nassau and his graduate student, Clifford Berry, in 1942 at what is now Iowa State University. This computer was 700 pounds, had vacuum tubes, and could solve equations with 29 variables, with a little manual intervention. A few years later, in 1945, there was also the ENIAC, aka the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, aka the Giant Brain. The ENIAC was deemed the first programmable electronic general-purpose digital computer. It was able to solve a large class of numerical problems through reprogramming. If you go back to 50s, the first set of commercial computers were just coming out. UNIVAC was the first one, and then IBM 650 here. But they were not widely available. You know, When IBM was building the 650, they said, 
Maybe we need 10 of these computers, that's all we need. IBM found a greater demand for the IBM 650, and one of them ended up at Carnegie Tech, now Carnegie Mellon, as the university's first computer. In this first episode, we'll get into how computer science became a thing at Carnegie Tech. We'll talk about some of the first computers at the school and hear about life in these early, chaotic, Wild West days. We will draw on two sources outside of our own oral histories. In 2006, the School of Computer Science and the University Archives, shout out to archivist Jenny Benford, conducted a number of short interviews with former CS students and faculty covering the 60s, 70s, and 80s at CMU. We also draw from research done by students for a workshop course on the history of computer science, taught by professors Christopher J. Phillips and Andrew Mead McGee in the fall of 2019. Shout out to Chris, Andrew, and their wonderful students. You can still see the exhibit they put together in the helix of the Gates Center here on campus. It's called computing underscore CMU dot log. Andrew Mead McGee will also be joining us as a guest throughout most of these six episodes, providing analysis of these Wild West days. So I am Andrew Mead McGee, a visiting assistant professor of history here at Carnegie Mellon University. I hold appointments in the Department of History and the University Libraries. I focus on 20th century United States history, history of technology, history of computing, and general American society, business, and culture. I'm interested in how Americans think about information technology and how it shaped the experience of the 20th century. So, in 1956, Carnegie Tech established the Computation Center. The center was founded by Alan Newell, Herbert Simon, and Alan Perlis, along with support from other faculty like Dick Seyert from the Graduate School of Industrial Administration, GSIA. It, of course, had the, the three great men, Alan Perlis, Alan Newell, and Herb Simon. Simon was novellist. Alan uh, Perlis was first touring lecturer and president of the ACM, and Newell had a bunch of titles and so forth. Very remarkable. They believed in chaos. I, it's not really that, but there weren't any rules. And that was one of the very great, significant parts of this university, and the reason why it has become so great. Freedom, nothing like it. This is Jesse Quatsi. Jesse Quatsi. He was at Carnegie Tech in the 60s for a couple of different reasons that we'll get into. Now, I was on the faculty at UC Berkeley for a while, and I noticed the difference. There's a lot of really good students, and they hit the books, they study, and they memorize everything, and they couldn't answer some of the questions that the Carnegie Mellon people, uh, students could ask, just through the, the way of approaching things, trying to really understand things and not memorize them and see things. and. Lots of stories about people who would have trouble getting into graduate school and got into here and then went off to found Adobe Systems. So the structure was non-existent. So computer science is a little late coming to the university that will become known as Carnegie Mellon. Computers come before computer science does. 
and the key date, as you've mentioned before, is 1956. But it's not engineers who bring computers to the relatively quiet campus of Carnegie Tech in Pittsburgh. It's business professors. It's scholars of business and society. So the first computer to come to CMU in 1956 is an IBM 650 that is essentially paid for through the Graduate School of Industrial Administration, a business school. The rest of the institute is mostly known for its pre-professional training of engineers and technologists. CMU at this time is small, relatively underfunded, relatively little known outside the region. What it does have are some ambitious scholars working in interdisciplinary fields and relatively deep-pocketed local business leaders who are willing to support the institution. So in 1956, the Computation Center was set up in GSIA. Yeah, yeah, it was in the basement of GSIA. Which is now known as Hall of Arts. And that same basement is where you could find the IBM 650 computer. It's a computer to serve the business school. That's why it goes in the business school. Just a little background. IBM produced this computer from 1954 to 1962. At their sales peak, IBM sold 450 units in a single year. Overall, they made about 2,000 systems. And you may be surprised to know that IBM actually made a profit on the computer. The IBM 650 weighed 5,000 to 6,000 pounds. And it could process 60 instructions per second. Compare that to a computer today where the processing power can be 2 billion instructions per second. And the figures who are key in this are Herbert Simon, Alan Newell, and Alan Perlis. Perlis is brought in from Purdue University to run the computing center and he will become the key figure for the next 15 years or so, creating a community of folks who will gradually identify as computer scientists. Simon and Newell will become the inspirational figures who set the cultural tone of the place. So why does the computer come here? It's not to solve complex engineering problems or mathematical equations. It's brought here to solve the kinds of problems that scholars of business and organization, those who would be associated with the GSIA, are seeking to, to resolve. So the, the Graduate School of Industrial Administration is the kind of entity that churns out mid-level executives for the big corporations in Pittsburgh, which at this time is the third largest hub of corporate headquarters in America. The reason they want a computer is to solve complex problems of moving multiple pieces around, shipping logistics problems, questions of how do I make sure I'm most efficiently dealing with all these boxes piling up on the loading docks. It's a short jump from those kinds of specific business case study adjacent problems to more general questions of logic and artificial intelligence.
Albin Varia was a physics student at Carnegie Tech in 1960. He recalls how he became interested in computer science. Come time to register for classes for the spring semester, you have an option. You can take the second semester of engineering drawing, or you can take the class called S205, which is the introduction to computer programming. I said, well, I know I don't like engineering drawing. I don't know anything about computer programming, so let's give it a shot. So that changed my life. I fell in love with computer programming. The only reason I did not change my major was because there was no major in computer science. There wasn't even a minor in computer science back then. So in, in my eight semesters here, I had a programming class or a computer class in um, six out of those eight semesters. It's almost addictive. In fact, it is addictive. Some of my fellow students in that time became so addicted to it that their schoolwork took second place and their grades showed it and they dropped out of school and they went to work in the computer center. I worked part of one semester my junior year at the computer center and my grades suffered so I stopped working at the computer center and my grades came back up. What is addictive about it is that it's not instant gratification. I mean, it is now because you can write your program and run it and it either works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, you know, you can fix it. But you're always making progress. And when it works, it's, you know, it gives you a great feeling. Albin provides a little more detail on the process of using punch cards. When I started programming, you used a key punch machine, like a desk, and it has a, a keyboard on it, like a typewriter keyboard. And it has a bunch of blank cards in it. And it would feed one card at a time. And as you hit the keys on the keyboard, it would punch holes in the card. And then you could feed the cards into a card reader, which was attached to the mainframe computer. It would read your program and run your program. So these were called 5081 cards. We used these for the 650, the IBM 650, which was the first computer on campus. That was the first computer that I used. I mean, I never got to see the computer, actually. You know, we would punch our programs onto cards, and give the card deck to somebody or put them someplace, you know, with a rubber band around them and so forth. The operators would pick up the card decks, run them through the card reader, and then the computer would run the program, and you'd get a printed output. Then we used it also on the Bendix G20. I have here a reference card, and this has um, the memory layout on it and what all the in machine instructions were and so forth. That was typical of a reference card. The Bendix G20 that Albin mentions was the second computer that the Computation Center bought in 1960. In our university archives, we have a few photos of the truck that delivered the G20. The truck was specially branded and read, This Bendix G20 computer system is on its way to Carnegie Institute of Technology. Pretty incredible. The university moved up from the IBM 650, which was a very slow machine, didn't have any internal memory, it had a drum memory. Can you imagine this drum going around real fast? It was a magnetic surface on it, and the head would move from track to track on the drum and write information on the drum as it went by. Anyhow, so we went from that to the Bendix G20. Jesse Quatsi designed the G20 and also designed the subsequent G21 specifically for CMU. Here's Jesse with his story. Well, there's a story uh, that I have. Should I tell it now? 
When I graduated from physics, I had a family already. I wanted to go to graduate school, and I tried to do that. It was just too much, trying to support them, give some family life, be a graduate student. I was full-time physics, and uh, the whole thing just didn't make it. So uh, a mentor of mine who had a PhD in physics, he said, well, you know, I'm in physics, and I keep running into computers, and I don't know what to do with them. Why don't you go and work in computers for a while? And so I left. I joined Bendix Computer Corporation. They, their attempt to do other than washing machines at the time. Fortunate enough to get the only patent on the thing in the first year there. That won me a Bendix Study Award. And guess what? They sent me back to Carnegie Mellon, <laughs> paid, family and all, get to keep the family. I then became um, an ECS, electrical engineering and communication and system sciences, yeah. So it's before it was a computer science department. And since I was the designer of the G20, I was asked by Alan Perlis, who, one of the great men in the computer history, um, gee, could you make us something bigger that we can use to support research at this place? So I, had, I was paid to do nothing, and I quit that job. Perlis arranged it so that I wouldn't have to go back and so forth, and I worked for him, and I built the G21, which is um, the computing facility. It took us all the way up through being called Carnegie Mellon University and uh, through founding of the Computer Science Department, et cetera, et cetera, and the ARPA grant that's in perpetuum right now supporting the thing. So that's my position. <laughs> it's a strange one. Quick diversion, uh, G21, I looked at uh, the catalog online at Dell Computers, picked out the, uh, the E510 and put a comparison. It's a desktop. It cost $599, okay? And it was um, 4,500 times faster, 4,000 times bigger, a couple of thousand times more rapid on, on uh, disk. And I happen to know what the price of a Cadillac convertible new was at that time. And I applied the same progress in computers to that Cadillac. And it, today you'd be able to buy a Cadillac, new Cadillac convertible for $3.24. It would seat 16,000 comfortably <laughs> and would have a top speed of 450,000 miles an hour. <laughs> so it's a deal at three and a, a quarter. <laughs> now keep in mind that Jesse's interview was conducted 15 years ago in 2006. So today's computers would equate to an even more impressive Cadillac. There was even another computer there that was sort of, was about the size of a refrigerator. It was called the G15. That was never part of our curriculum. The computation center moved around a little bit over the years. In 1962, the center relocated to Scaife Hall. So when Scaife Hall was built, then the G20 was moved to Scaife Hall. The system that I built uh, was installed through the roof of the new Scaife Hall. They put the G21 on the top floor, and therefore, it had the very best view on campus, which tells you something, I don't know what, but you know, the people couldn't get at the view. The computer had it. It was blocking. <laughs> After graduating with his physics degree, Albin eventually took a job at the Computation Center. 
So I started working here, bought my first car, two-seater Triumph TR4. When else am I gonna buy a sports car, right? I have no dependents, I have a job, full-time job. <laughs> they sold me the car and let me drive it off the lot a day or two before I actually started work, you know. The next computer that Carnegie Tech acquired was the IBM 360 Model 67. But the university decided, or the computer center decided, or the higher-ups decided, they were going to buy this IBM 360 Model 67. It involved a new concept called virtual memory. So I was the only one who knew what virtual memory was, so I was assigned to that project. I worked on that computer until I left. Well, I started off as a programmer, ended up nine years later as an associate director of the computer center. My boss was um, Ron Rutledge, and we'll talk about him more later. And that's what we call foreshadowing. The same way that today folks upgrade their smartphones, CMU is upgrading by leasing new mainframe computers that are exponentially more powerful than the previous generations of computers that they acquired. They are smaller but pack more punch. And this is facilitated in the early 60s by a $400,000 grant from ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Administration. And we'll actually be talking a lot about ARPA and DARPA in episodes two and five of this season. But the thing to know about these computers is CMU does not actually own them, it leases them. This idea of the Wild West of computing stems from the freedom provided by a new field. The future is open, possibilities abound. There's also a general lack of structure. Incrementally, more structure entered the picture. In 1961, an interdisciplinary PhD program called Systems and Communication Sciences was created. In 1965, the Computer Science Department, or CSD, arrived. I came in the fall of 1965 in the first official class in the new Department of Computer Science. There were only 10 faculty in that first year, and I think three or four of them were on sabbatical. And likewise, in terms of graduate students, I think there were 12 or 14 of us in the first class. There were probably another 20 to 30 that were already here in the SNCS program. But all told, I'm sure we weren't more than 50 uh, graduate students. That's Peter Freeman, who after receiving his PhD from CMU in 1970, went on to teach at UC Irvine, became CIO at the Georgia Institute of Technology, and later greatly expanded the computer science offerings at Georgia Tech. We didn't socialize with the uh, faculty particularly, but certainly on a workaday basis, uh, a very good and collegial working relationship. Next up, we hear from Larry Reeker. Uh, I came here in, uh, when I graduated from Yale in 64. Um, there really wasn't computer science much of anywhere. When I was looking for something like this, Herb Simon was the person who got me to come here, and the, some of my professors at Yale 
were in awe of him. And it turned out everybody should have been because he was wonderful. He was at the Graduate School of Industrial Administration at the time, and so that was what I enrolled in uh, until the computer science department started a couple years later. It was um, very, very sort of free free form. Nobody really knew what a, what a dissertation in computer science ought to be because it, wasn't, it was so new. Uh, in the first years, uh, a lot of the people took a long time to complete their thesis because they just didn't know exactly what it ought to be. There's also the perk of meeting the greatest minds of computer science. This was sort of the epicenter of what was happening in uh, computer science and that uh, every professor in the world came through here to visit uh, either Newell or Simon or uh, Perlis or all three to see what was going on, and they all gave talks. In the four years that I was a, a student and then two years as a research faculty, I probably met most of the pioneers in computing who came through here for anywhere from an afternoon to several weeks, or in some cases even for uh, a sabbatical. Perlish used to have um, graduate student parties at his house, just select, I don't know, 20, and there'd be some visiting famous computer scientist, and would sit around, drink beer, and he'd ask us questions and everything. Like the Grecian Forum or something. Uh. Alan Newell. Uh, he was giving me a ride home one day. I learned that he had grown up in San Francisco. And I said, how can you stand to live in, in those days, smoky Pittsburgh, when you've lived in San Francisco? And he said, well, I did that. And uh, that was fine, but this is where my work is, and that's what's important. And that's always stuck with me. Uh, and it, uh, it helps one to live in less than uh, desirable places sometimes. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time on the podcast, we will discuss how CMU acquired grants from ARPA and how that funding fueled much of the activity of the 1960s. We'll leave you with some final thoughts on those early days from Jesse Quatsi. See you next time. The whole point was it was interdisciplinary, mathematics, electrical engineering, uh, social science, uh, and some people think psychology snuck in there. You moved around to different courses as appropriate. Basically, it's just uh, courses that look right and uh, interesting and uh, thesis writing and, for me, building this big system. Here, it's... Um, more individualistic and people are important and understanding people and working with them, trying to get a judgment of what talents lie within. And that's the secret of life. Trying to understand each other, find a way that we can work well with each other. And that's big here. Cut Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University. This episode was written and edited by Catherine and Dave. And Dave made all the sounds. All the oral histories are available within the university archives, housed in the Carnegie Mellon University libraries. <laughs>